The Chinese social network Douban was born in a different era for both the internet as a whole and the internet as it exists on the Chinese mainland. The best international comparison for Douban is probably Reddit, which is a network of message boards with different focuses, topics, and regions, and thus wildly different in nature and social composition from page to page, despite being predicated on the same software and hosted at the same website. Doban is also a fairly streamlined, simple setup based on the generic online forum model. But like Reddit, that model has allowed it to serve a huge variety of people with a huge variety of passions and pastimes, and has sometimes led to controversy as a consequence. Doban differs from Reddit, however, in that it was built to be a site for fans of various sorts of media, from books to music to film to activities and businesses around China. The idea was to create almost a microblogging service where folks would come to see if a movie showing at their local theater was worth the money or a local restaurant was worth checking out. And that focus eventually led to Doban's reputation for being a legit place to find real reviews about things, positive and negative and neutral. It also became a place to discuss other topics, though, including things like fandoms related to fictional or real-life characters and gossip associated with celebrities. One of Doban's most popular forums, in fact, is the Doban Goose Group, which grew out of a precursor group called Gossip is Coming, which was started on the site in 2010, and which expanded from covering news and gossip related to a popular Taiwanese talk show to showcasing and stimulating conversation about all sorts of people and entertainment properties. The Goose Group eventually caught mainstream attention when it began to host not just gossip, but also news about sexual misconduct amongst celebrities and misconduct in general by companies, which the group then protested and boycotted and generally raised a fair ruckus about. Periodically, these controversies would involve the government, or members of the government, or people tied to members of the government, and the relevant conversational thread would then be removed by the group's moderators. By 2020, though, some members of the group began to blend a hyper-patriotism that became popular around this time, most overtly demonstrated by so-called wolf-warrior politicians who decided to show their support for the government by being super brash and rude and threatening to anyone who didn't do precisely what the Chinese government wanted them to do. And that same posture was blended with a sort of feminist ideology that pervaded the mostly female group, which led to some boycotts and protests against perceived enemies of the Chinese government at the same time they were taking aim at folks who were reported to have gauged in sexual misconduct or in some way talked down about or treated women badly. Despite that seeming alignment with government goals, though, the Goose Group was eventually shut down, reportedly because government censors found the group's ability to quickly muster boycotts and opposition threatening and didn't like that so many people were being aimed at things so casually and regularly. The group could someday aim at them, at the government instead, and they wanted to nip that issue in the bud before it became an issue. This shutdown lined up with a larger bundle of government moves that were almost all antagonistic toward Chinese tech companies and the folks who ran them. 
part of Chinese President Xi's recalibration of the nation's resources during the pandemic to, in his and his government's estimation at least, put money and other resources where they belong, focused on the most vital things the country and economy and people need, rather than in the pockets of billionaires, in games and shopping technologies, and in other industries and endeavors that were previously encouraged because they enriched China and some Chinese companies and people, but which were becoming increasingly frowned upon as frivolous due to that declared redistribution of wealth and recalibration of national focus. Many other Doban groups have been shut down in the past few years as well, including those oriented around or friendly toward subjects that are taboo in the country, like homosexuality, partying and drinking, and anything even tangentially related to anti-government, anti-censorship thought. Even a group related to what's often called lying flat, which basically means acknowledging that the economy is rigged against you, or feeling that way at least, and that there's consequently no point in trying, in participating in the economy, so it's best to just lie down, not do anything, not struggle, but also not work hard, and accept your lot for what it is within such a system. That group was shut down too. What's happening now on Doban, with all these shutdowns, already happened across most of the rest of the Chinese internet, especially Chinese social networks, years ago. It's just that Doban managed to be small and simple and weird enough to avoid detection and to avoid angering censors too much beyond this point, and thus it was thought of as a small oasis where people could carefully be themselves, say things they wouldn't say elsewhere, online or offline, and connect with like-minded folks, find people to date, find non-politicized takes on celebrities and restaurants, and generally engage in something close, if not exactly the same, as what folks in other countries are able to do online, on such networks. What I'd like to talk about today is what's happening in China right now, and how a significant COVID outbreak is stressing some aspects of Chinese society and social moderation. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, Shanghai Fences Up COVID Hit Areas, Fueling Fresh Outcry. The COVID-19 pandemic started in Wuhan, China, according to all the evidence we have at this point, and initial reports of the disease started there as well, at the tail end of 2019 into the early days of 2020. By late February 2020, though, that surge of this new disease that was unfamiliar and which we didn't have any real way of treating or preventing other than lockdowns and masks was pretty much under control across almost all of China, in large part because the government, despite spending a whole lot of time and effort censoring information related to COVID early on, also spent a good amount of time and effort locking things down, restricting movement, tracing where people go, and generally doing what an authoritarian government does best, making decisions that might be uncomfortable for people and even seem abusive through some lenses. But they do these things with enough authority that citizens don't really have a choice in the matter. They follow directions or get locked up. And that authority, blended with that desire to keep COVID from returning, led to other policies and rules that were at times quite unpopular, but were still applied firmly, and by all indications, with a pretty solid amount of success. 
When infections popped up, the area where the infections were detected were locked down. Everyone involved was tested. Folks who might have been exposed had to stay in their homes for long enough for the disease to have passed. And that was that. A fairly brutal, at times, but effective, means of keeping such a virus from spreading and triggering another outbreak, like they saw at the very beginning. This policy, usually referred to as COVID-0, or sometimes as zero-COVID, was replicated to varying degrees elsewhere as well, even by countries like New Zealand that, although far from authoritarian, were able to replicate some of the same policies on a smaller and less brutal scale because they are an island nation and can thus more easily cut off the flow of new potentially infected people to their territory, and because they have relatively small populations, making the testing and tracing and locking down of infected people a more palatable and achievable option. Such successes, elsewhere and in China, have generally turned out to be pretty big political coups in the sense that those who made them work, even if they were not enjoyable in the moment, were appreciated by people who enjoyed the fact that they could generally lead normal lives, within the confines of their own countries at least, while the rest of the world struggled with fluctuating outbreaks, ever-changing rules, and the ever-present concern, a warranted concern in many cases, that one might go to the grocery store and unknowingly catch something, potentially deadly, and maybe spread it to one's family and friends, also unknowingly. Countries making use of this policy also enjoyed economic benefits stemming from their relative normalcy. Service-based businesses in particular flourished in places like China compared to other countries where sitting indoors at a restaurant became a no-go option for the better part of two years. The success of the COVID-0 approach changed with the emergence of Omicron, however, because Omicron was just that much more transmissible and was able to, in many cases, dodge around immunity provided by earlier infections and by what are now considered in many places to be incomplete vaccine doses. Vaccines and previous infections still help a bit, but not anywhere as much as they did earlier, and most countries have fairly sluggish vaccine booster adoption rates, which is unfortunate as those boosters are the only thing that really hold up significantly well against Omicron, and you can imagine why uptake of boosters and vaccines in general might be less enthusiastic in places that never dealt with the stress of a full-blown multi-year pandemic. It may just seem unnecessary because everyday life hasn't been substantially impacted over the past two years in the same way it has been in non-COVID-0 nations. So Omicron washed across the surface of the planet incredibly rapidly at the end of 2021, and beginning in 2022, it started to pop up in some of these COVID-0 countries, at first being staved off in the same way previous variants were handled. But by early April 2022, several of these countries had been hit hard by a new wave, and China was beginning to see the same within their borders. The Chinese government decided to stay the course, though, and from the very first new round of infections, the first week of January 2022, they started locking down large swaths of cities, aiming to prevent spread from areas they knew were afflicted and keep everyone in place until the infections passed and they could resume life as normal. This is what worked for them earlier, after all, so it made sense that they would attempt it again. This approach seemed to work a little but outbreaks kept popping up city by city, and the lockdowns just got bigger and bigger, their previously solid defenses more and more porous. 
In mid-March, Shenzhen, which is one of the most important manufacturing cities in the world, was placed under lockdown, and all its factories and shipping infrastructure shut down, causing ripples up and down the global supply chain. Nearby Hong Kong was locked down too, and had been since January, and as a precautionary measure, schools and public transportation in Shanghai were closed, just to make sure the virus didn't seethe into one of the country's largest and most central hubs. At the end of March, though, the Chinese government announced it would be locking down Shanghai in two parts, testing one half, then the other, in an attempt to check local infection numbers, but not shut down this fairly vital megapolis entirely while doing so. That did not seem to work, at least not as well as they had hoped. As reported in that Reuters piece, as of the day I'm recording this in late April, Shanghai is still locked down. Its ports are blocked and manufacturing facilities are operating at low or zero output. Government officials have begun closing streets and erecting fences to keep people from breaking quarantine and leaving their apartment buildings, and things are reportedly even worse inside buildings where one or more infections were detected. People have been sealed into their buildings in some cases to completely prevent infected people from leaving and spreading the disease beyond that building. And this approach, and those lighter restrictions with fences and blocked-off streets, has led to a surprising amount of pushback, surprising for China, at least, where social disruption, speaking out against the government, and complaining in any way, really, can be punished pretty severely, and where the internet and other communication mediums are carefully scrubbed of any indication that anything's wrong or anyone's unhappy with anything the government does. This kind of complaint and this scale of complaining are very uncommon under the circumstances that are maintained in China. Shanghai is China's most populous city, with about 26.3 million residents in the city proper and about 41.3 million in the metro area. It's also an important port city, manufacturing hub, and commercial center. It's a vital loci of activity and commerce, like Paris or New York, but far, far larger. So this shutdown, in addition to being socially disruptive, has proven to be massively economically and structurally disruptive as well. City officials are conducting daily citywide COVID tests in order to keep infections in isolated areas and then slowly open up non-affected areas. But Omicron and the Omicron subvariant BA2, both of which are becoming dominant in the region, just like they have across the rest of the world, spreads faster, further, and more easily across both distance and immunity-based barriers. So what worked previously isn't working as well now, which has resulted in increasingly desperate efforts by government officials who have in some cases forced entire communities from their homes, saying they need to disinfect their buildings, and in other cases have forced people from their homes to use those buildings as quarantine facilities for the infected. They've run out of other spaces to use for this purpose. There are a few variables making this wave especially tough on China. One of them is the sheer density of the population in many of their cities. Diseases just tend to spread more and faster when there are more hosts in close proximity, many of them using public transit, shopping in well-traversed markets, and so on. Another is the aforementioned transmissibility powers of Omicron and its descendant BA2, which has, again, caused a wave of infections around the world, 
handedly beating all the old infection records pretty much everywhere. And China was able to keep that wave from hitting them for a while because of all their limitations and rules. But it's finally arrived a few months later. So you could see this as a delayed version of what everyone else dealt with back at the end of 2021 and very beginning of 2022. Another variable, though, is more structural and unique to China. The Chinese government funded the development of their own vaccines and treatments and encouraged the use of both instead of international versions of the same. All independent tests show that Chinese vaccines and treatments are less effective than those available elsewhere. And that fact, alongside the relatively low vaccine and booster levels in the country, because people weren't as afraid of the pandemic, because they've had it pretty easy most of the past two years, all things considered, means that a whole lot of Chinese people have little protection compared to folks in other countries who have been going through it and either evading infection all this time, were already infected and thus have some amount of natural immunity to future infections, and who in many cases have received multiple doses of vaccines that work a lot better than the Chinese ones. There's also some evidence that China's approach, which is to focus more on testing and isolation rather than vaccination and the development of immunity via that means, might put them at a disadvantage when something like Omicron comes along. Because Omicron tends to find a way through such barriers, and the only way to really deal with it is to take the punch and let it move on. China, in contrast, is trying to dodge the punch, trying to keep people separated and to test their way to a post-wave resting state. But that method arguably isn't rapid enough to stop something that spreads this fast and broadly, nor does it sufficiently prevent this type of spread. What we're seeing now, then, in Shanghai, because of this combination of variables, is a lockdown that's gone on far longer than planned, that's resulting in very high numbers of infections in the hundreds of thousands so far and still ticking upward, and the first deaths, official deaths, at least. And Chinese infection and death numbers are generally considered to be suspect at best, so the true numbers are probably far higher. But the first official deaths from COVID since 2022 have come as a result of this wave, which is not great in terms of government reputation, despite their solid success in keeping the pandemic mostly away from their people all this time. We're also seeing new trends related to apartment buildings full of people locked up together, placing bulk orders of food items and hoping that they're delivered so they can keep eating. And surprisingly for China, we're seeing high levels of protest and public disruption due to discontentment related to these lockdowns and their severity, alongside all kinds of online activity that would typically be easily blocked by censors, but which is being cleverly spread, in some cases, by posting videos of protests from Les Miserables or using China's own anthem and the words from it as protest. Some online protesters have even taken to replacing the phrase Chinese government with the phrase U.S. government, so that people who know will know, but censors won't necessarily be aware that this is content they need to target, as was the case with the posting of show tunes and the posting of words from their own anthem. Even as Shanghai's numbers, both infections and deaths, continue to rise, we're seeing early lockdown measures being implemented in the Chinese capital, Beijing, where a lot of wealthy and powerful people live, and a lot of locals were doubtful because of that, that they would see the same measures being used as in Shanghai, on the streets, and in the apartment buildings of Beijing. But those doubts would seem to have been misplaced. 
And in recent weeks, there have been panic buying runs on grocery stores for food in the capital city as locals try to avoid the food shortages that have been reported in Shanghai. And the government, as of the day I'm recording this, is beginning to implement testing procedures and shut down streets and buildings throughout the capital city. Now, there's a good chance at least some of this will have changed by the time this episode goes live. Maybe more cities will be under lockdown. Maybe the numbers will begin to trend a bit better. Maybe they'll get far worse. It's hard to say. And this is as fast-moving a story as any other localized slice of the pandemic's waves over the past few years. Something that seems likely to last from this, though, is the impact of these, by some estimates at least, heavy-handed measures against large numbers of people in these cities where the government, despite all these efforts, still seemed unable to stop the waves of infections and deaths. That misalignment of action and result has, alongside the heavy-handed actions themselves, resulted in a huge amount of protest activity, online and offline, and that's something that may spark tiny movements that live on well beyond this moment in pandemic history. There have also been some complaints, and some analysts from outside the country have echoed these sentiments, that the shortages, especially food shortages, experienced by people in these massive lockdown cities may have cultural resonance that reminds locals of what they or someone in their family suffered under the government's planned economy back in the mid-20th century. Basically, semi-regular starvation and shortages of basic things because of the government's inability to suitably plan for what everyone would need. There's a good chance this is a resonance only felt by some mostly older members of the public. And much of the complaining is actually the consequence of relatively wealthy big city people who are typically spoiled for choice when it comes to food and handbags and cars and anything else they might want to buy, suddenly not having all those options paired with the fear associated with a pandemic tidal wave that seems to be spreading out of control, which is absolutely disruptive, but not the same thing as truly worrying that you will starve because of a government-caused famine. That said, the fact that people are complaining in public, harassing and chasing government officials and workers, and airing their grievances on the heavily controlled Chinese sliver of the internet speaks volumes about how unpopular this sequence of events has been, and it may cause headaches for President Xi, who has seemed primed to become president for life in recent years, growing more comfortable flexing his political power since the beginning of the pandemic in particular, but now possibly weakened by the flagging performance of one of his flagship efforts. COVID-0, which seemed to serve the country well for a while, but which is no longer bearing the same fruit, and which is contributing to a sagging economy that lagged behind the U.S. in growth last quarter, about 4% to the U.S.'s 5.5% year-on-year, which now has Xi scrambling to show that the Chinese system of government is superior to Western-style liberal democracy via other means, maybe including through the continuation of a pandemic approach that he hopes will be painful for a few months before returning the country to stability and calm, as was the case back in 2020, and which could ultimately be the case here as well, though only time will tell on that. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey. 
This is actually the ninth book of a series called The Expanse, and the first book, if you haven't read any of the previous ones, is called Leviathan Wakes, and that would be where you would want to start. Most of this book wouldn't make a whole lot of sense unless you've read the previous eight books. But the series is very well worth checking out. It's essentially a huge political story and a story of technology and culture and conflict, kind of a space opera sort of thing that mostly but not exclusively takes place in our home solar system. But the technologies are interesting, the characters are good, the stories are fun, and it's one of the few science fiction series in particular that I think turned out really well as a TV series. They had to end it recently before getting to all the content of the book. But after the first season or two in particular, the TV series, which was scooped up by Amazon from sci-fi, I believe, is a pretty good watch as well, if you're interested in something like that. But the book series, as tends to be the case, also has a whole lot more to it, both in terms of context and content, and in terms of the actual story, which goes on much longer than the TV show. But if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Leviathan Wakes, which is the first book of this series, or Leviathan Falls, which is the final book of the series, by James S.A. Corey. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bundle of other things I make, including three other podcasts at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.